I hope this isn't the case, but has anyone here ever gotten into some sort of car trouble because you ignored your car's check engine light? Anyone? Okay, I see a few hands there, right? So that can happen, right? When you ignore that check engine light, that can happen. So, so don't ignore it, okay? But that's not what we're talking about this morning. You know, the Bible is clear when it comes to the, the story of Scripture, the message of salvation, the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the, the message of Scripture is not difficult to understand, but there are verses in Scripture that are very difficult to understand, aren't there? Even Peter, as he's writing Scripture in Second Peter, talks about Paul's letters and says, an apostle says, some of Paul's letters are hard to understand. So, so we know if an apostle says Scripture is hard to understand, then Scripture is sometimes hard to understand. And I think what happens is we get to these difficult verses sometimes, and kind of like we do with our check engine light, we just ignore them. We just say, we're not going to worry about that verse. We don't need to think about that, and we just move on. But the thing is, just like you might get into some car trouble when you ignore your check engine light, when you ignore difficult verses of Scripture, you're putting yourself in spiritual danger in that. You know that? The difficult verses of Scripture are not just there to be ignored. False teaching preys upon difficult verses. You know, a false teacher will find difficult verses, and they will, and they will tell you, here's what it means, and, and if you don't study it and, and seek to understand it, then you're going to be left vulnerable to someone else saying, here's what this difficult verse means. And so we leave ourselves in, in spiritual danger when we don't understand these verses. And, and even more than that, just like we just saying, if all Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is meant to, to reveal Him to us, and we really want to know Him more, then it's in those difficult verses that we have the opportunity to say, I want to press in here to know the Lord more. I want to press in. I want to understand this because, because this is God's word. And it's all given to us. It's all revealed to us to, to know. Now, it's not to say that it's easier, that you'll understand everything you could understand, or that we one day will understand. But, but when we come to a difficult verse, we need to press in, one, to protect ourselves from the spiritual dangers of just skipping over, but also so we can just know our God more and hear what he has said to us. He has revealed these words to us so that we would know them. And this morning, we come to a difficult verse. We come to a verse that one commentator says is one of the most difficult verses to understand in the entire New Testament. And when I read that a couple weeks ago, preparing to preach, I realized I should not just try to tack that on to another passage. We should slow down here and, and, and really seek to understand. So we're looking at one verse today, church. My pace just keeps slowing down through Matthew, right? But one verse in the Gospel of Matthew. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, and the one verse we're looking at is verse 23. Matthew 10, 23. Now we're in a series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment, and and so Matthew over and over again has been showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He's the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. And, and we sh seeing that he's the fulfillment, we should follow him. We, we should become his disciples and, and trust in him and, and, and give our lives to him. That's what we've been seeing. Now this morning we're going to see a new theme begin to emerge that's going to emerge more and more as Matthew continues. And that's this, that Jesus not only has fulfilled the scriptures, but that Jesus also promises to fulfill the scriptures in the future. He is the fulfillment, 
Not only in what he has done, but in what he will do. And to follow him as the fulfillment does not just mean to to trust in what he has done, but it means to trust what he will do. To to follow him by faith that, that he will fulfill even more in the future than he has in the past. We're going to see that this morning in Matthew 10. To understand this verse, we need to understand the context. Again, we are in a passage where Jesus is speaking to the disciples about mission. He's sending them out on mission, and he's preparing them for persecution. And so what I want to do this morning is let's read, starting in verse 5, and we're going to read the context just to remember where we've been. Our verse is verse 23, and that's where we'll end our reading. But we'll, we'll read from Matthew 10, verse 5 through 23, and then we're going to focus in on 23 this morning. Starting verse 5, Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Let's read that last verse again. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. All right, so we're going to press in in verse 23 this morning, and I want to begin just by just simply explaining the two parts to this verse. It's not, in some ways, a hard verse to understand. There's an instruction, and then there's a reason for the instruction. The instruction is this, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. That's the instruction Jesus gives the disciples here. When they persecute in one town, flee to the next. This picks up right where Jesus left off, right? He's been speaking of as they are sent out for the gospel, they will experience hostility. They will experience hatred. They will experience suffering. Some of them will even be put to death. We saw last week that this is part of Christ's plan to advance the gospel, that the gospel will advance through a winsome, suffering, dying church. As the church goes forward with the gospel in the face of hostility, that itself is a witness to the worth and reality of the good news. This is Christ's plan. And yet here we see, when, you, when they persecute you, flee to the next, we see that this persecution does not mean that we are called to present ourselves to our persecutors and say, do with me what you will. No, that's not what Jesus is calling us to do. 
He says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Which means that there's something that we can understand here called faithful fleeing. There's a category here that Jesus gives for faithfully fleeing from persecution. Now, there's an unfaithful fleeing, of course. We saw last week the one who endures to the end will be saved. So an unfaithful fleeing would be, I'm going to renounce Christ so I don't die. Or I'm going to turn back and I'm not going to go on mission anymore because of what's happening. That would be unfaithful fleeing, right? But what is faithful fleeing? Faithful fleeing is fleeing from persecution for the gospel in order to continue to preach that same gospel somewhere else. That's faithful fleeing. It's something that we see over and over again in the book of Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 8. I want you to see some examples of this faithful fleeing. Acts chapter 8. Now, it's important to know the context of this, that this is immediately following the first martyr in the early church. Stephen giving bold testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ and stoned for his faith. The first person who gave their life for the sake of Christ recorded in the scriptures in Acts chapter 7. And this leads to Acts chapter 8, where we read this in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then look down at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So, Stephen has just been stoned for preaching the word. A great persecution breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And what do they do? They scatter preaching the word. They flee preaching the same word that just got Stephen stoned. That's faithful fleeing. We see it also in Acts 14 in Paul's ministry. Turn a few pages forward to Acts 14. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium. They are preaching the gospel. And in Acts 14, in verse 5, we read this. Acts 14, verse 5, When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with the rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So they are preaching the gospel. They hear that, the whole town is about to come against us. What do they do? They flee and go preach the gospel somewhere else. And there they experience more suffering for preaching the gospel there. What do they do? They flee and preach the gospel somewhere else. So, so this persecution indicates to them it's time to move on and preach the gospel somewhere else. This is faithful fleeing. Now there are some occasions when someone may choose and realize we should not flee. We, we need to stay. Paul himself is an example of that later on in his ministry. We, this is not a time to run away from persecution. This is a time to stay and understand that we need to remain faithful unto death itself. And so there are times where, where that is the case in church history and, and maybe in your life if you are in a situation as a missionary or something where you are in a, in a context like that. But the principle of faithful fleeing is here and is given to us for the advancement of the gospel. God advances the gospel both through the suffering of the church in persecution and through scattering the church through persecution so that the gospel moves to other places. Faithful fleeing. So that's the instruction. When they persecute in one town, flee to the next town. And here's the reason. Back in Matthew 10, here's the reason. For truly I say to you, 
You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now I want you to notice the weight Jesus places on this. He says, for truly I say to you. Now you, you don't use that phrase. Jesus didn't use that phrase just for anything, right? He, he uses this phrase when he's about to say something important, something significant. He's saying, listen up, understand this. Truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. In other words, Jesus says, you aren't going to have time to reach all the different towns in Israel before I come again. You aren't going to have time to get to them all. The reason that you should flee to the next town is because there's only a limited amount of time to proclaim the gospel to as many towns as you can reach before the Son of Man comes. That's what Jesus is saying. So, so on the face of it, it's, it's fairly simple, right? Get the gospel to as many towns as you can before the Son of Man comes. Get the gospel to as many towns in Israel that you can possibly reach before the Son of Man comes. You're not going to get to them all before the Son of Man comes. What he says, you're not going to reach them all, so don't just wait around where they're rejecting the gospel and there are more towns in Israel that need to hear the gospel. You're not even going to reach them all before the Son of Man comes again. So, so that's, what it, that's what he's saying, but when we think about what does this mean, what is, what is he teaching here, that, that's where the difficulties come in. The, the main problem is here, what did Jesus mean by the phrase, before the Son of Man comes? What, what was he talking about? And, and at this point, what I want to do is shift gears a little bit, and for the rest of this message, I'm going to ask questions for us to answer. Four different questions that will help us understand what this verse is teaching us today. And the first one is just that. What is Jesus referring to when he says, before the Son of Man comes? What is he talking about? Before the Son of Man comes. And there's a few options that we need to think about with that. Uh, the first thing I want to say is, is that the concept of the coming of the Son of Man comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel, and it's strongly associated with the coming of the kingdom at the end of time. In Daniel 1, like a son of man comes to the ancient of days, comes to the, the one true God, and he is, is the one who receives authority and power, and he receives the kingdom, and he's the one who establishes the kingdom on behalf of his people. That, that's the book of Daniel. And the New Testament picks up on this, and Jesus says that he is the son of man, and the New Testament picks up on that, that idea to say that the, the coming of the Son of Man is the coming of the kingdom of God. It is the coming of the reign of God. It's, 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 it's the establishment of the promises of God. And yet, you guys know this, with the kingdom of God, there's stages to that coming, right? The kingdom of God does not just come completely uh, in one moment, but it, it, it comes in stages. The kingdom of God was near when Jesus came, and yet it's not yet arrived. And, and very similarly, we need to think about the coming of the Son of Man that way. That's just, that's just kind of a foundational concept, is the coming of the Son of Man is not just a flat concept, but it's a concept that in Scripture, just like the kingdom, uh, happens in different ways and different stages throughout redemptive history. And so with that said, there's a few, a few ways we could think about the coming of the Son of Man. One is that he's referring to his coming at the end of history. He's referring to his coming at the end of time. This is how we generally conceive of the coming of the Son of Man, is his, his coming on the last day in glory to establish the new heavens and the new earth and to save his people and to judge the world. 
This is our blessed hope as Christians, is this, this return of Christ. And so that could be what he's talking about. But there's a big problem with that, isn't there? If you're looking at this, you might realize what the problem is, is that he says, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And here we are, 2,000 years later, Israel has been reached. I mean, the gospel's been proclaimed to all the towns of Israel. I don't think there's like this little town somewhere that, that has been missed this whole time, and we need to make, just get to that town, and you know, I don't think that's, no, no that Israel's been reached, and yet the Son of Man, in that sense, has not come yet. This leads a lot of liberal scholars to just say Jesus was wrong. Many commentators just say he was wrong. Jesus just thought that he would come, and he didn't come. And of course, that's, that's not an option for those who understand that Jesus is the Lord of glory who came and humbled himself and died on the cross and rose again. We understand that, that, that Jesus was not wrong, that that understanding is wrong. This is not referring to his final return, because the towns of Israel haven't they have been reached, and he's not come back yet. So this, this, this couldn't be referring to that final return, that final coming in glory that is our blessed hope. So another option is that he's referring to his coming after his crucifixion. And there's two kind of varieties of this option. One is that he's referring to his coming through the resurrection to his disciples. After he died, he rose again, and he came to his disciples. Or, another option is that he, he died, he rose again, he ascended into heaven, and then he sent his spirit, and he came to his disciples through his spirit, right? And so, those would both be comings of the Son of Man, that you can understand how that would be considered a coming of the Son of Man to his disciples. And yet, again, there's a problem with this, because in the context of Matthew 10, which we just read, verses 16 through 22 depict what happens in the book of Acts. And they depict a time when the disciples already have received the Holy Spirit. He, he says in those verses that the Spirit of your Father is the one who will be speaking through you. And we know that the disciples weren't out on mission being persecuted but before any of that happened, right? And so, so he's already set the stage to say that this is all happening after you've received the Spirit, not before. And so those options don't really fit the context either, right? We're looking for something that is after the Spirit's been given, yet before all the towns of Israel were reached. Some, some sort of coming in that time frame. And this leads to the option that, that I believe is, is correct, that many commentators do point to, and, and it may surprise you at first, but I hope to show that I think it's biblical, option three is that Jesus is referring to his coming in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 by the Roman Empire. The coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 10, 23 refers to his coming in judgment against Israel through the Roman Empire's destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And this leads to the second question, which you're probably asking, is how does this verse have anything to do with the destruction of the temple? The word temple is not in this verse. The word destruction is not in this verse. Rome, Rome is not in this verse. AD 70 is not in this verse. How in the world do you get to that from this verse? Right? And so I, I want to show you a few things that I think will help us understand this. First, one that we've already laid out is just the context tells us that this coming happens after the Spirit and before 
all the towns have been reached in Israel, the towns of Israel. So, so the, the destruction of the temple is something that fits into that paradigm, right? This would have been after the Spirit was given, yet in a, in a time period that is short enough that all the towns would not have been reached yet. So, so we get the, it fits the context that, that has already been set up in Matthew. Another thing that helps us see this is that the Old Testament already establishes this very pattern. Think about Old Testament prophecy and, and all the prophecies of the day of the Lord. Now we know those prophecies have an end time fulfillment, but in the Old Testament, the, the day of the Lord that, that God spoke against his people Israel was a day where he said, I'm going to come in judgment against you. And yet what happened in history was that a foreign power came into Israel and destroyed their temple and exiled them. That was the day of the Lord. A foreign power like Assyria or Babylon coming into Jerusalem, destroying the temple and taking the people away from the promised land. That was God's judgment in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. And so we've already seen God say that, that he comes in judgment against, against his unfaithful people in this way. We, we've already seen it happen. In the same way, the Ro Romans, this foreign empire, came into Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, and God, through that, was judging his people who had rejected the Messiah. Another reality that, that feeds into all this is the transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. We saw a few weeks ago, Jesus said that the old wineskins cannot hold the new wine, right? Which would say that all the old forms of Judaism are not uh, able to hold this new covenant grace that's coming. And the, the old forms are, are all to do with the temple and the sacrifice and the priesthood. All those old forms were becoming obsolete because the new covenant, Jesus was replacing them all, Right? We are, so Jesus has been saying those, those old forms are going to have to give way and calling the Jews to recognize, I am the new wineskin through which you receive God's new covenant grace. Of course, the Israelites, by and large, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. The, 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 the temple curtain was torn in two when he was crucified. And just decades later, that whole temple itself was destroyed and has not been rebuilt. Even Orthodox Jews today do not offer sacrifices. They did not go to a temple. That whole system has been, has been put under judgment. Now all of that, you can see hints of maybe it is the temple, right? But what confirms it to me is Matthew 24. Turn just a few pages ahead to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and 25 is the end times discourse of Jesus. We'll be looking at these chapters in the not too distant future. But I want you to see, as Jesus in these chapters describes what is going to happen in the future and describes his coming and describes final judgment, look where Matthew 24 begins. Matthew 24, verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So I want you to see there that as Jesus prepares to teach on his coming and the end of the age, that that is 
correlated with these things, which is the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The destruction of the temple uh, is, in a sense, one of the first things that would happen in the end times. This as an aside here, I just want to, to say before I forget to, to say this today, church, we are in the end times, and we have been in the end times since Jesus ascended into heaven and gave his spirit. Don't listen to someone who says, oh, now we're in the end times, and the end times are about to... No, we, we have been in the end times. We are waiting for the return of Christ. We have been in the end times, and the destruction of the temple was one of the signs that those times had begun. All that to say, you think about the context of Matthew 10, the, the pattern of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant transition to the New Covenant, and Jesus' own teaching that the destruction of the temple would be, in a sense, the beginning of the end times. It makes sense that in Matthew 10, when he says, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes, that in that context, he's referring to him coming in judgment against Jerusalem through the destruction of the temple. Okay, that's a lot there. I know. Can breathe a second? Think a second? Okay. Third question. If this verse refers to the destruction of the temple, then does it have any relevance for us today? Right? So that, that's really the question we would be asking next, right? Is if, if, if this does refer to that, then why does it matter anymore? Was this just an instruction for Jesus' disciples in that day and age? And here's why it matters to us today. Because the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 prefigured the final judgment that is coming. There is a correlation between that event and the final judgment that is coming one day. And again, we see this in Matthew 24. Look again at Matthew 24. If you've, if you've turned away from the turn back, Matthew 24. And, and something interesting in this chapter is that sometimes it is hard to distinguish between, is he talking about the destruction of the temple or is he talking about the end of time? Sometimes it's hard to tell. Like, where are the lines? They, they almost blur together as you read the chapter. Just for an example of this, look at 24, verse 15. He says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, we won't get into all that, but that, that's a reference to, to uh, uh, the destruction that's happening in the temple, a, a foreign power coming into the temple. He says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what's in his house. And let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Those verses sound very rooted, very historical, very much about what's something that's happening in Judea at the temple. right? Jesus preparing uh, the disciples for that event. And yet the very next verse says this in verse 21, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And never will be. And that really indicates to us that there's something even greater that's, that's going to take place here than what happened in Jerusalem in AD 70. Skip down a few verses to verse 29. Of Matthew 24 says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. That's not 8070, right? 
That is the Son of Man coming in glory to, to judge the world and to save his people from all corners of the earth. And you see in, in the discourse, in Matthew 24, that there is, this, there is this overlapping almost between the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and the final judgment that is coming. And the way to understand it is that that destruction prefigured final judgment. That judgment on Israel prefigured the final judgment that's coming on the whole world one day when the Son of Man comes again. Church, when the destruction of the temple happened in AD 70, even according to these instructions, those who were in Judea could flee to the mountains, try to escape what was happening. But listen to Revelation chapter 6, describing the final judgment. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? In AD 70, they fled to the mountains. But the final judgment, they'll flee to the mountains, and they'll say, we're still not safe from the wrath of God and from the wrath of him, they'll call to the mountains, fall on us, crush us, save us from the wrath of the Lamb. Who can stand on that day? Who can stand when we have sinned against our Creator? God, who can stand against the holiness and wrath and righteous judgment of God and of the Lamb? Fall on us is what everyone on this earth will cry out on judgment day. Who can stand? Who can endure the wrath of the Lamb? And yet the answer is right there, isn't it? He's the Lamb. He is the Lamb. And, and He's the Lamb because He is the one who came, not in judgment, but in humility. He's the Lamb who came to take on a baby's body and to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for sinners, taking the judgment taking the judgment of God in the place of sinners like you and me. And he rose again, and now he extends forgiveness to all nations who call on his name. He extends salvation to everyone who repents of their sin and calls on his name today. Today, he is extending that offer to all people, to you today, extending that offer. But one day, he is coming again in wrath and judgment on all the world, and it is inescapable and unbearable. That day is coming. And church, those who are listening here today, maybe you realize that you have not made yourself right with Christ. You've not come to him. You've not, you've not repented of your sins and trusted in him. And you're hearing this, and, and, and maybe you're saying, well, that judgment's a long way away. Maybe you think that. We don't know when it will be. But here's the reality, that no one knows when our own lives will end. No one knows the day that Jesus will come to us and say, that, that's it. That's your life. It could be today. Jesus could come back today. You could die today. Either way, that's it. 
That's your life. Today is the day of salvation, and, and there is no promise that tomorrow that offer will be there. The Son of Man is coming in glory one day, and He is coming to each person. And at the moment of your death, there are no more opportunities to repent and trust in Him. And so there's an urgent call this morning, today, to trust in what He did in coming the first time to die for your sins, to receive the gift of forgiveness. I urge you this morning to receive the gift of the Lamb's sacrifice for you, to repent of your sins and to trust in Him so that that day is not a day where you will cry out to the mountains to fall on you, but it is a day that is a hope and a joy to look forward to when you will enter into the glory of the kingdom of God forever and ever. If you've not yet turned to Christ, then I call you to turn to him this morning. Today is the day of salvation. And church, for us, here's what all this means as, as we try to apply this verse in Matthew 10 to ourselves, is that, is that there's a parallel here. Just as the disciples needed to urgently advance the gospel to the towns of Israel before that judgment came, so we also need to urgently advance the gospel to all nations until the day of judgment comes. We must urgently take the gospel forward. And this leads to a final question. This is one that is more broadly related to the teaching of the Bible, not so much to Matthew 10, but it's one I've been asking this week and that I think that you will be asking if we don't answer it. And so I'm going to ask it and then we'll see why. The question is, if God is sovereign in the salvation of the elect, then why do we need to be urgent in advancing the gospel? If God is sovereign in the salvation of the elect, then why do we need to be urgent in advancing the gospel? And here's why I want to ask this question this morning. Because up to this point, you might be thinking, as you're hearing all this, we need to get the gospel to as many people as possible before Jesus comes, or they might not get saved. Like we, we, we need to make sure we get it out so that everyone can have an opportunity to be saved or else someone might not, someone might not hear it and they might not get saved before Jesus comes back. But, but that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture is clear that every one of God's elect people will come to faith and that even every people group will come to Christ. But then the question is, well, why do we need to be so urgent about it then? If, if, if God's going to do it, why do we need to be so urgent? Do you guys understand the tension there? Well, here's, here's the answer. We don't urgently advance the gospel because God's mission might otherwise fail. We urgently advance the gospel because God's mission will be accomplished, and when it is accomplished, then our blessed hope will become a reality. That's why we're urgent, because we want this day to come. We want the Son of Man to return. We want His kingdom to come, and He will come when all people that he has chosen to save, and all people that he has chosen to save, hear this gospel. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter is addressing, in, in one of the earliest generations of, of Christianity, addressing those who are saying, where's Jesus? He said he was coming. Where is he? Now imagine, that was in the first century of Christianity, how much more might people today say, where is he? It's been 2,000 years. 
he said he's coming soon. You, you, you guys are believing in something that's nonsense, right? So Peter's addressing that situation, addressing that criticism. And, and we'll just start in verse 8. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Let's just think about that for a second. What year is it, guys? 2021, right? Almost. So it's been a little less than 2,000 years since Jesus rose again. He said, with the Lord, a thousand years is as a day. So, yeah, it's been 2,000 years. But what is that from the Lord's perspective? Someone give the answer. Two days, right? From the Lord, it's been two days. From the Lord's perspective, I mean, time is different from God's perspective. He's not slow. So here's, he's not been slow. And then look what he says, the Lord, in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And then look here, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Now there is most definitely mystery here. No one knows there the hour except the Father. But as long as we are here, we know we have work to do. Jesus hasn't come back yet, which means that there are more people out there and more people groups out there that need to hear the gospel. And every day we wake up, we can hasten the day of the Lord, hasten that day coming nearer as we urgently advance the gospel to those who have not heard. As we urgently do that work, then in a mysterious way, we, we hasten the day of Christ's return. And that is the motivation for our urgency. We want that day to come. We long for his return. We urgently advance the gospel because we long for the kingdom of heaven to come and to behold our king and savior face to face. You know, if you look at a couple who's about to have a baby, they're pregnant. We want to be more like the mom and less like the dad. All right? So dads generally, stereotyping for sure, but dads generally have some things that they need to do before the baby comes. But they say, well, yeah, we got four months. We got eight months. It's, it's, only, it's only week 39, right? We've got time to put the crib up and to do all these things, Dad. And, and it's not until the very last moment that they start to feel anxious and realize, oh, we, we've got to do this before the baby comes, right? Now, moms, on the other hand, there's this thing called nesting that pregnant moms have. And, and the baby might not be coming for months and months, and yet they are eagerly, getting the nursery ready, getting the decorations out, rearranging, the, painting the walls, right? There's an eagerness there, not because the baby's coming and, and oh, we're not, we're not going to get it done. No, because they're just so excited 
for the baby. Not that the dad's not excited, but you, you get the picture, right? We want to be more like, we just want to be eagerly preparing for that day to come, giving ourselves to the work that needs to happen because we are so excited for Christ to return. There's a connection between our advancement of the gospel and our eagerness for Christ to return. If you truly are looking for that day and longing for that day and praying, come Lord Jesus, then you will be going with the gospel to those who have not yet heard and have not yet believed. Because you know that as long as he has not come yet, there is still more work to do. This is the urgency, church. I'll make three applications this morning. First, we need to repent of passiveness in gospel advancement. Last week we talked about winsomeness in gospel advancement and, and the need to be strategic and careful and winsome and, and relational and in the way we advance the gospel. But here's the thing, and I am guilty of this and, and confess that this morning, is that we can easily let winsomeness become passiveness. In the name of winsomeness, we just don't really do anything to advance the gospel. And we need to repent this morning of that passiveness. We need to be urgent in advancing the gospel. Winsome, yes, yet active and intentional and urgent in that gospel advancement. So this morning, church, I call you to repent of that before the Lord, to confess to him your passiveness in gospel advancement if you are guilty in that. Second, we need to reflect on Christ's first and second comings. It's Christmas time, and so we are reflecting on his first advent, but advent points us ahead too, doesn't it? It's a great reminder this month that Jesus came and he is coming again, and we need to reflect on both of these realities. Reflect on the, the sacrifice of the Lamb, and also reflect on the glory of the Lamb as he comes again. Because it's these two realities together, church, that will move us from passiveness to urgency. It's when we reflect on the glory of the Lamb in the cross and in his return that we will long for the Lamb's return. And so that will lead us then to the third application, which is to urgently and eagerly pursue the advancement of the gospel in your life. Do it through prayer, eagerly and urgently pray for those who don't know Christ, eagerly and urgently pray for the Lord to send out workers into the harvest field. Devote yourself to earnest, urgent, eager prayer. Partnership with those who are going, supporting them, giving them your time, not saying I'll do that in the future, but giving them your time, giving them your money, giving urgently partnering with them now, and then going, going to People groups, going to your neighbor, whatever it might be, going urgently. Because we do not know when he will come again. But we know that we have work to do today. One day he will come, we'll see him face to face. We saw this morning, when we see him, we will be like him. We'll be with him forever and our joy will be complete. That day is coming. Church, let us call you this morning to repent of passiveness, reflect on both comings of Christ, and to give yourself to waiting and hastening for the day of the Lord when he comes again. Let's pray.